2: Derek, what is your relationship with sneakers? It's, it's a tumultuous one. Derek Johnson is a designer at Slate, and he's very into sneakers. Whenever some cool new sneaker is being released, Derek knows all about it. Right now, he's got his eye on an upcoming drop of some limited edition Nike Air Max 1s, made in collaboration with an Amsterdam streetwear boutique. He's hoping to buy them online before they sell out.
1: They did a pair of orange ones that sold out very quickly last week, and they're coming out with a pair of blue ones. So I want the blue ones. Actually, I like better than the orange ones. So we'll see what happens.
2: What do you think your odds are of actually being able to buy them? Zero. Zero? (laughs) (laughs) Zero. The problem with buying limited edition sneakers online these days is that the competition is incredibly fierce, maybe unnaturally fierce.
1: If you're going to buy online... You have to be fast, um, like literally like fast with with, with your your fingers and typing things, because there are people out there that have found ways around that.
2: What are these ways around it? Bots. They're called bots. Bots are a special, clever kind of software. Much faster than any human sneakerhead could ever click on the correct shoe size and enter their credit card number and whatnot, bots can swoop in and just buy Everything in the blink of an eye. And then the people who control the bots will put those sold out shoes on the resale market at much higher prices. So a limited run Adidas sneaker priced at $250 might get swallowed up by bots. And later that same day, you'll see those sneakers on eBay for $600. Derek says sometimes the bots will just rip a pair of shoes right out of your virtual shopping cart.
1: The number one way to know that a bot has beaten you is if um, you're purchasing something that's in your cart if you're not fast enough putting in your information, your, um, your address, your billing address, even if you're not fast enough doing all that, that can actually leave your cart.
2: It's in your cart and then suddenly it's gone? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine that at the, at the Foot Locker, like the shoes are in my cart. And then I look down and they're just not there <laughs> Yeah, anymore.
1: it's like literally somebody like <laughs> grabbing them out of your hand <laughs> and running before you can actually catch up to them.
2: Yes. <laughs> Bots don't just buy cool sneakers. They buy up those concert tickets you wanted so they can then scalp them to you at an outrageous markup. They buy up tickets to basketball games and Broadway shows. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, bots were buying hand sanitizer and face masks. Later, they were booking all the vaccine reservation spots. Anything that's in very high demand with a very limited supply, that's an opportunity for the bots to become greedy hoarders and corner the market. Do you remember what it was like before the bots came? Yeah, it was easy. This week on the show, it's getting bot in here. So what can we do about it? Is there any way to create a system where Derek and you can buy stuff without a swarm of bots getting in the way? I'm Seth Stevenson, in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us.
0: Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
3: The field of economics uh, I'm in, called market design, we think about the rules of the game. We think, look, the ticket bots where the sneaker bots or high-frequency traders in financial markets, they're, they're
2: trying to optimize given the rules of the game. Eric Budish is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He's studied things like concert ticket scalping and high-frequency trading, areas of the economy where markets are being badly skewed by infestations of bots. You don't need to be a, a
3: genius to figure out what the incentives are. The incentives are to use technology to buy the mispriced asset at scale. And you see that in the sneaker market, you see that in the ticket market, I've documented that in the context of financial markets. Uh, Upwards of 20% of financial market volume is high frequency trading races. The the typical race, the, the difference in time between the winner and the loser is between five and 10 millionths of a second. So like you blink your eye tens of thousands of times as much time has elapsed than a typical high frequency trading race it's just like unfathomably fast and that's that's 20% or more of stock market volume the structure of the market rewards speed the structure of the sneaker market rewards speed the structure of the ticket market rewards speed speed's not a constructive form of competition but that's what the market induces
2: Whether it's things Eric has studied closely, like ticketed events and high frequency trading, or other stuff like sneakers and hand sanitizer, the problem is the same. New technology that's upended how markets function. Of course, the underlying issue, the fact that some things are very rare and also very desirable, which can lead to some sketchy behavior, that part's been around forever. All right, so this thing where people buy up all the tickets to some event and then scalp them at a higher price or buy up All of a limited edition product and then resell it at a profit. Is that relatively new, or is that something that also happened in the past? So I I found examples
3: of that phenomenon dating back to a a Charles Dickens reading in the 1860s. So no, this is not a new thing. Sneakers is a newer thing, just because people weren't collecting sneakers 100 years ago. But but no, this is an old phenomenon.
2: Was this Charles Dickens giving a reading and? people were scalping the tickets? Charles Dickens was giving readings. um, Tickets
3: were priced at $2. It was the 1860s, so $2 was a lot of money back then. But the resale value, there were reports of a resale value of $20 or $30 a ticket. There were reports of a, a young boy being paid in gold for a good spot in line.
2: It's the same economics without the scale of the internet. Has the internet fundamentally changed the dynamics of this? What the
3: internet did was it it changed the technology of ticket speculation, of the, the the scale with which you could amass tickets in the primary market to then easily resell them in the secondary market. So what used to be like stand in line and buy tickets became build a bot and buy tickets across the whole freaking country. And so the, the economies of scale in amassing mispriced tickets, that changed dramatically with the internet. And then the secondary market became a lot easier to use, too. So the secondary market refers to where do you resell the mispriced goods. So in tickets, it's been StubHub and Vivid Seats and Tickets Now and eBay for a while. And in, in other markets, you know, sneakers at StockX and a few others, there's a, a lot, the, the secondary market venues have become a lot easier to use, too. In the old days, if something was priced at 50 bucks, but worth 200 bucks, there'd be a lot of shady brokers who would get the $50 tickets to then resell at 200 bucks. But a lot of fans would also get $50 tickets and be quite happy about it. But if all of the tickets get scooped up by ticket bots at 50 bucks and then resold at 200 bucks, that doesn't do the team or the artist any good. So the the internet kind of broke the ability to mostly get your tickets to your fans at at a low price.
2: So there's two things. One is like the percentage of the tickets that scalpers can get, the ease with, with which they, but then there's also like the ease with which they can can do it. So it's like if you had to physically stand in line to buy the tickets and then you had to stand out in the cold being like, hey, buddy, need a ticket to sell the ticket. It feels like you were doing more work to earn the, <laughs> the difference there as opposed to like you made a bot that just does it all. Yeah, it took, it took more labor. It was, it was more labor intensive. So it didn't scale as well. First, the internet upset the uneasy equilibrium we had with scalpers. And then bots threw gasoline on that fire. They're able to scour the internet for new, rare products and snatch them up faster than you can say, hey, no fair. When products launch globally, with sales starting at different times in different time zones, the bots will actually evolve to become more effective from one country to the next. And while there's some legislation that attempts to prevent bots from buying up tickets— legislation that's been only moderately successful, there's still no law against using bots to buy things like clothes or sneakers. One notorious bot designer claims his bots have successfully completed 2 million checkouts for items worth around $300 million since he got started in 2018. He now rents out his bots, so you too can become a bot overlord if you want to get into the scalping game. Akamai, which makes some of the leading anti-bot software, says that business is growing at 40% annually. But while the bot battlers fight software with software, Eric is thinking about the bigger picture. So bots are a symptom of a mistake. There's a a
3: couple different versions of the mistake you might have made. One is you set the price too low or you set the quantity too low. Um, So you, you left money on the table or if your intention was to leave money on the table because you, out of the generosity of your, uh, of your heart or because you're kind of a long-term, prudent business person and, and want to give value to your fans because you know a loyal fan base is important. But for whatever reason, if, you, if you're choosing to set a price that's too low, then the mistake you've made is, is letting the, the, the below-market-priced goods go to bots, not your fans.
2: An artist might set ticket prices low for a concert, or a sneaker company might charge less for a shoe, as a way of earning goodwill with fans. They don't want to seem like they're gouging. They want to seem like they're cool, like they're setting reasonable prices, even if the actual demand would allow them to charge a whole lot more. Or sometimes they might set a price too low because it's important for optics to have the thing sell out really quickly, to seem like people are clamoring for it. And when they don't raise the price, it seems effectively what they're doing is just giving free money to the bots. Yes. I think the other cool
3: option, the the wonderful late economist Alan Kruger called this Garth Mode. So Garth Brooks would, he had a view as to what a fair price for a Garth Brooks concert was. 75 bucks, I I think was the answer. And he just announced, I'll play as many concerts as there is demand to see me at 75 bucks a ticket. So what that does is it kind of puts a ceiling on the resale value because you, you know there'll just be another, ti- another concert you can buy tickets for. It. That's a beautiful way of shutting down speculation is just pr- produce as much as the market will bear at the price that you think is a, a good, fair price. Sneaker companies could do that. They could just produce more copies of the in-demand sneakers. But the, the choice of making it limited edition and also setting a below market price, that's the one that as an economist, is, is, it's just hard to get your head around. It doesn't make, doesn't make perfect sense.
2: If I'm a sneakerhead and there's limited edition run of just 50 pairs of a very cool sneaker and I want to pay the $100 face price for it, but oh, I can't. Every bot's bought it up and they're only selling it for $500. Well, one solution is oh, they don't just make 50 pairs of sneakers, they make 5,000 pairs of the sneakers. But that that just like defeats the whole idea. The whole idea is I want the cool limited edition sneaker, but I want it at the price I can pay. Yeah, so they, I, I, I hear you. And economists
3: have this line that, you know, wants are insatiable, resources are limited.
2: So you're saying consumers are babies and they should suck it up. <laughs> that's your, your your language not mine from the point of view of the regular person who just wants to buy a pair of cool sneakers out of love not to turn a profit on them the whole situation is disheartening but eric would like us to think about it a little differently i want to
3: distinguish between it's hugely frustrating because lots of people want this thing that i also want and it's kind of expensive like is it hugely fr- I, my my son loves sports cars i do not drive a ferrari this morning we were driving to school and there was a Ferrari next to us. I, I could just go home crying at night. Like, life is not fair. I do not get to drive a red Ferrari to school each morning. And at some level, like that's, that's a piece of, of market capitalism. Like Ferraris are expensive. And part of me has that response to your question about, about sneakers. Like If, there's, if you want to buy a nice pair of sneakers, you can. If you want to have a limited edition pair of sneakers that tons of other people want, and the reason they want it is there's only 500 of them, at some level, like that's sort of like wanting the Ferrari. Like, that's gonna be an expensive object. The thing that pisses me off, that frustrates me as an economist, is the stupidity of a system of pretending the price is low and fair and accessible, but actually the price is high and market clearing. It's just the, the difference in price between the perceived price and the actual price is all going to, to speculators or someone who, who, who's grabbing a rat, so someone who's gra- grabbing a piece of that markup on the
2: sly. It's like if Ferrari set the price of a Ferrari at $5,000 and you were like, sweet, I can get a Ferrari. But then, of course, you can't. Everyone buys them up and there's only a secondary market where they cost $180,000.
3: Yeah. And you'd look at Ferrari and be like, what are you doing? Why, why on earth? Like, just set the price of a Ferrari <laughs> to be an appropriate market clearing price. But it doesn't do anybody any good to pretend the price is five grand if it's it's 180 grand. It's just gonna create a lot of uh, crushed hopes and dreams.
2: When we come back, are there any solutions to this? Or have the bots won the war? So how would we create rules that prioritize the emotions of the person who just wants to see the concert or buy the shoe and enjoy it?
3: So I th- I think Garth mode is a clean answer. It's just incre- if you want to set a low price and you want your fans to all have a chance to buy at that price, raise the quantity. Just perform more shows, produce more cool sneakers. So everybody can have, have access. I think the other, the other kind of answer is harder to execute on, but is to really put a lot of care into the allocation of the fairly the low-priced good directly to your fans. So airline tickets have names on the ticket. I can't resell my ticket to you at a markup because my ticket says Eric Boudish on it. Right? So airline tickets are totally non-transferable. If you did that, then you could just sell tickets to your fans at whatever price you think is fair and shut down the resale market.
2: These platforms where the secondary sales happen, like StubHub or eBay or wherever people are reselling their limited edition sneakers, do they bear responsibility? Is there anything they could be doing to make it better?
3: I hold them responsible for lobbying to preserve flawed rules. So they're, uh, that that's a line where I am willing to... to veer into morality talk. Um, I think the thing to note about StubHub and the secondary market venues is how much of the pie they manage to grab for themselves. StubHub and SeatGeek and all, all those sites, their fees are so high that they're actually making more profit on the resale than the, than the bot themselves or than the broker themselves. And that, that means that they are, in effect, they want there to be lots of brokers developing great bots to scoop up mispriced assets to resell, and then they're taking, taking this gigantic toll.
2: I understand why their motivation would be for there to be more scalping, but they're at least providing some kind of service. They're providing a platform where if you're willing to pay the higher price, okay, you can go there and pay the higher price and get the ticket or get the sneaker in the other case. But what are the what are the scalpers providing? What value are they providing? So I think in a perfect, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think in a
3: perfect world, there would be a resale market or, or something like it where if you really badly wanted to go to an event and you were willing to pay, pay through the roof to get there, there, there'd be a price, like someone would make you a market. I've used the secondary market to go to events I want to go to all, all the time. It's I, I went to 35 years ago last month. I saw the Mets clinch the division title. My dad took me, he, at the time, he said like a friend gave him the tickets, but I think you know, we, we all we all know where he, where he got them. We sat like way up in the outer, upper deck uh, at Shea Stadium. And like, that was great. And I don't know what my dad paid for those tickets, but whatever it was, it was totally worth it. And I'm glad there was a market that made that possible. And that that was in the good old days when most tickets went directly to fans in the first place. It's this situation we're in where most of the tickets flow through bots and then the secondary market both of whom are collecting a big a big fee that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense
2: eric budish has also studied the world of high frequency trading where software gets used to execute huge amounts of financial transactions in fractions of a second with both the sneaker buying bots or the high frequency trading bots people are investing tons of time and money and expertise in improving these bots. They're locating the bots closer to the point of sale, both with high-frequency trading and even with the sneaker sales, they're locating the bots closer to get that millisecond advantage. This all seems like it's just parasitic behavior. Is this providing any value to society?
3: Let me answer my, your question directly, which is, which is no. It, 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 it's socially wasteful behavior that does not provide value to society. When you see technology being used for these tiny relative advantages like being located ever so slightly closer to the exchange because that gives you a, an advantage measured in millions of seconds or being having your phone located ever so slightly closer to the, the point of distribution for a sneaker sale, that's a symptom of competition on a bizarre level. And that's economists call that socially wasteful behavior. Or, or rent seeking behavior. I try to emphasize to my students the difference between uh, value creation strategies and value capture. So the, the companies we, we admire most grow the pie, they invent new things, they improve products, they create value. And a lot of this stuff is about capturing from a fixed pie or even shrinking the pie. It's, yeah, parasitic is not too strong a word.
2: So if I Put you in charge of the universe, but I told you the only thing I want you to solve is this problem with bots buying up all the sneakers, all the cool sneakers. What would you do?
3: (laughs) First of all, I want to reject the premise of your question, which is I'm in charge of the whole universe, and my task is to fix the sneaker market. So I guess if I if I were king, I would if if Nike really wants to sell just fifty copies of some sneaker, they should. Sell those sneakers to fans who have you know, done works of charity or who have you know, won essay contests. You know, some, something noble and value-creating for society. That could be a way of you know, so a comp- competition on some different dimension other than price and other than botting that's more, uh, more socially valuable.
2: Right now, the competition for the regular person is you know, clicking faster than a bot, which you're never going to win, but you might beat a bot in an essay contest. Yeah, you could beat a bot in an essay contest. Just
3: finding some constructive dimension to compete on, so, so that, that would be a way of redesigning the market to produce value-creating competition, not value-destroying competition.
2: Eric Budish, thanks so much.
3: Oh, th- thank you. This is uh, this is fun, and I, I'm glad to be with you.
2: Eric Budish is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Derek Johnson is a designer at Slate. And that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch and Allison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you missed it earlier this week, you should definitely go back and listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next, the show is about Bill Gates and his role in lagging vaccination rates. Lizzie O'Leary will be back next Friday, and Mary Harris will be back in your feed next week. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.